prophet, preacher, sermon leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell is a pastor? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we sit down to talk about our experiences and challenges as pastors doing small-town ministry during uncertain times. Join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. <laughs> Sorry. One of these days, uh, you you need to come up and go to Punxsutawney because it is a treat. Like, I hate silly things. Like, I... I I would do very well as a Puritan because I, <laughs> I, I'd be I'd be like, yeah, sure. Let's get rid of all the silliness, you know, and, and wear, wear gray and, and, you know, don't talk to each other. But uh, <laughs> but like I so I thought I was going to hate Punxsutawney. It is the most charming town I have ever been in. It really is like mm. every resident of that town has has bought into the groundhog theme hook, line and sinker. Like they're like, yes, we are a groundhog town, and there is magic in this town, and there's Punxsutawney Phil, he's in his his hole, you know, like like they've they've erected like this big museum around a groundhog hole, where Punxsutawney Phil lives, and Punxsutawney Phil drinks special magical elixir that makes him the old this is real this is true that makes him the oldest living groundhog ever and also induce in, induce him with with magic powers of weather prediction gobbler's knob is this is this park where where all this uh, like like expensive you know stadium you know amphitheater type stuff where they hold up punks to tony phil and he delivers his his uh, announcement about the weather it's great. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's incredible. <laughs> well, um, I'll take your word for it. We'll see. Mm-hmm. So, Ethan, this week we want to talk a little bit about church conflict. That's going to be our, our kind of topic. And you and I both have experienced a little bit of that in the past couple, well, in the entirety of our jobs, because yes. <laughs> being a church person is kind of just being in conflict a lot. Um, yeah. Called to be peacemakers, deal with conflict. So I'll start off by talking about my week because there's a little bit of conflict, but not a ton. And then we'll dig into what's going on in your world and kind of transition from there. Sound good? Sounds great. So what did I do this week? Oh, so I went to, we talked last time about professional development. I went to that, that conference, which was Mm -hmm. called to be profits. Um, which I sold to my people as like a community building conference, but it really is about like, how do you talk to your people about climate change and aren't we <laughs> called to be disruptive? Yes. And one of the, one of the speakers mentioned that as a pastor, you're always going to have an eternal tension between wanting to care for your people and knowing that you need to speak prophetically to your people. Right. And it was a great conference. A lot of it, actually, the content was stuff that I learned at Wesley because Wesley kind of shapes us to to be looking at these big ticket items, these like big cultural conflicts and, and big social justice issues. But at Wesley, you really just get told to like be a prophet and go speak. And like it doesn't really matter how your people react to it because you're speaking God's truth. And or or I feel like I hear a lot of my friends from seminary say things like that. Like if you're not preaching on gun violence this Sunday, then you're no true preacher, which yeah. always hit me the wrong way. What um, what a helpful comment. Right, right. Um, and I've actually found other people uh, on on like religious left Twitter um, who have made really good points about that of like. People are going to preach to their context, and maybe their context isn't ready for your gun violence sermon that you think we all should preach on. Uh, right. Because people aren't ready to receive things a lot of the time. Sometimes people need to get shaken up, and whether they're ready for it or not is immaterial. Sure. But a lot of the time, you need to be laying a foundation so that when you do need to talk about difficult things, you can have that conversation and it'll stick. 
so we talked about that a little bit at the conference too. They also had karaoke. Uh, it was at a Lutheran church. They had an open bar in the in the fellowship hall that we were meeting in. Gosh, yeah, man, yeah. Methodists have archaic laws. Like <laughs> and it, I mean, apparently it was new for the church when they built this. They're like, well, let's let's build it with the intent that we'll be able to have wedding receptions in here, and then people can have their their alcohol at the wedding, and it'll be fine. I dream about that. Yeah. Yeah. So we had uh, we had karaoke with the people who came to the conference, which meant that I sang a version of Living on a Prayer with a New Testament scholar from somewhere out in California. And it was just well, a delight. We are, we are halfway there. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so that was great. And I drove back on Saturday night, like really feeling really affirmed that like. So I remember doing the baptismal renewal service at Wesley and being so on the fence about it and being so on the fence about committing to pastoral ministry. But at the end of this conference, they did an anointing and they just took a delightful smelling oil and they uh, made the sign of a cross and made a circle and said, like, name, you are called to be a prophet in this world to build up God's community or something like that. And I like, I was so ready for it. And I felt so much more encouraged and supported and like sanctified in a way that I didn't anticipate feeling sanctified. Like it was just night and day in terms of experience. Hmm. So I come back and I'm like all ready to come and And I had planned a sermon to talk about money because it was Lazarus and the rich man. Yep. Which yep. comes right after Jesus's teaching on money and how you can't love both God and money. And I was like, well, we we talk about this as if it's about the afterlife, as if it's this depiction of the world to come. But it really comes back to the world that is. And so I did this whole exegesis with it where. I like did an exegesis with my congregation. Like I came out from behind the lectern. I had somebody in the congregation read the passage again. We went through who are the characters? What's the story? What are people's motivations? Where is this at in Luke's gospel? What's the context? Who are the Pharisees? Like all sorts of things. I talked to, and I talked about the afterlife and Abraham's bosom and how this is Hades. It's, it's not Sheol. It's not really even hell, right? It's that Greek conception of hell, which is different from what we think of today. And I got to the end of the exegesis and I was like, what is this parable about? And people were like, treating other people kindly. And I'm like, sure, sure. But like, look right back. What was Jesus just talking about? Now, remember, Luke orders things thematically. So if he's just been talking about the dishonest manager, which is about money, and he's just done a bunch of teachings about money, then this parable must be about. And there was like one person who was like, money, money. And I was like, yes, it's about money. Let's talk about (laughs) how we use our money. And And I explained to them that I was doing this with the purpose of showing them how I get to the conclusion that I get to, because I know it's going to be different than how some people are going to read it. Right? Like I know that people are going to look at this and are going to say, no, this is about, this tells us that there is, this exists an eternal punishment and torment for people who don't believe in Jesus in this world. And, And they're going to only see that or they're going to see it as a condemnation of the rich man's pride or they're going to see it as we have to listen to what Jesus says and we have to listen to the law and the prophets. But only what I think is important about the law and the prophets, right? Like people are going to take it different directions. But Mm -hmm. Luke clearly intends for us to think about clearly intends for his rich patron to think about how his rich patron uses money. Right. 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 And so I do the sermon. We have a finance committee meeting after church. (laughs) So in which I found out that our budget for this year is $20,000 more than last year because I'm a full-time pastor and that comes along with paying my health insurance. Yes. And we were only kind of making ends meet last year, apparently. And we're getting some help from the district. But like the district is paying all of my housing allowance. So that doesn't even go in in the church's budget. But my health insurance and my pension, they're only helping out a little bit with. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so I was really ready for them to go into panic mode and be like, well, we can pull out a savings to cover things for this year, but we're going to have to go back to a part-time pastor next year because we can't afford a full-time. And then it turns out that there's a promissory note that was given to the church as a part of an estate. And the person who has to pay off the promissory note hadn't been paying us and now is. And that diff that payment makes up most of the lack in the budget. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We still have like 3000 4000 to kind of figure out. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a godsend. It was it was already there and the person had been paying it, but he had a he had all of his money tied up in transitioning other houses and it was we gave him a lot of grace and he's paying now and we're good. But as a like as a continuation of of the sermon and of that meeting, they were trying to figure out where they could cut church costs so that either we could put more money into missions which I'm mm -hmm. for, or just make sure that we make up that difference. And we talked about tithing and things, and, and I'll see what I can do with that. Uh, but one of the things that was brought up was, well, maybe we should cut the music director's salary because she's a music director and a communications director. And the communications director was supposed to set up the website and is supposed to maintain the website and do the church Facebook page and do the slides on Sunday morning. And I think that's it. But I came in and I'm like, well, I know how to use MailChimp, so I'll just go ahead and set that up. And I know how to build a website because I've done it before and I'll just do it. Right. Like I have the time. I have the skills. There's not learning on my part required. I just got to sit down and do it. So I did. And because it's still new and I'm still setting it up, I still want a lot of control over these things mm -hmm. until it's settled in a way that I know is serving the community the way I know it needs to serve the community because I have some background in church websites and what they need and how you communicate digitally. And more than our real, I mean, really fantastic music director who is a former librarian. So she does know some tech stuff and like does mm -hmm. a great job with the things she does. But like I have more expertise than she does. Sure. And I want to get it set up the way I want it set up and then I'll hand it over. But since I'm doing some of that stuff, because I'm here full time and I can, they're like, well, we can cut her salary because she's not doing all the things that are in her job description. And I was like, oh, oh, no, because she is like most people in this area, you know, cobbling together an income from retirement from one job. She just picked up another job that's part time and she gets money from this. So I don't want to be the cause of this person not getting the full amount of money at the same time she's doing less than she was before or or she was never completely meeting all of the aspects of the job. I mean, I guess she was because we had this little Google site site that you could find, but part of the motivation behind having a website for us is that this is a vacation destination for people or people come up for the summer and today people like google to see what churches are around and if they if they they're a retired person who used to go to united methodist church in florida they're gonna google and see what united methodist churches there are and now they can find us right. and the one we had before wasn't really cutting it so now we have this tricky thing where the head of finance isn't a huge fan of the music director. Like, I think she likes her okay, but I think she thinks that she's always been overpaid for what she's doing. And mm -hmm. I think she's a little grouchy that the website ended up the way that it was. I think that we are that we are criminally underpaying all of our staff. Uh, of course. Our cleaning lady deserves much more than what she gets. But that's just the way that churches are. They're like, what can we cut? And an easy thing, like, you can't change the power bill. You can't change any number of things. And the things that feel flexible to them are staff salary. Mm -hmm. And so now we've got this tension with having somebody's going to have to sit down with our music director and see where we can negotiate on that cost. And how it how it'll change. And I think we can leave it as is. And I think it's going to be OK, but it's going to kind of poke that underlying tension that we've all been kind of ignoring. Right. And I need her to not quit 
because I don't know where I'm going to find another music director, and we don't have anybody in the congregation who can step in. So we we will be up the creek without a paddle if she's sure. gone. And I like working with her, and that's really important. Mm-hmm. So so that's there. And then we had we're trying to start this tutoring program that I've been struggling with. The community organizing group that we've been working with has been a little slow to get the word out. And um, and transportation is a problem, and we haven't really figured out how to fix the problem. So that means the past two weeks, it's just been me and my SPRC chair and her husband sitting around and waiting for kids to show up that aren't going to show up. Yeah. Which is fine. It just means there's some more problem solving that needs to happen. But sure. that means that I have gotten into some pretty in-depth conversations with my SPRC chair's husband, who also does our sound. And he is he is a unique individual. <laughs> and he they did disciple Bible study, all of the available disciple Bible studies, which is is a college level almost like biblical studies set of classes, but like through the lens of United Methodist faith. Sure. For those who don't know disciple. So you get into a lot more of the academic stuff than you get into just in like any regular Bible study. Cause a lot of Bible studies are fluff, honestly, like a lot of the stuff <laughs> that is put out, I'm like, this helps me in no way, shape or form anyway. Um, right. <laughs> and so, so they went through disciple and that was something that was really important for this guy to be able to have that that academic background and to have a little bit more of the theology and the, the pastor, the previous pastor made the mistake of telling this person that, you know, this is master's level content, master's level theology and biblical studies. I, it's not, I mean, like I can hand you my like college undergrad textbook and it's going to be more thorough than disciple is. But so now this person thinks that he has, all of this knowledge and thinks that he's just on this level where he can do whatever he wants to do. He talked about reading confessions by Augustine and talking about how he's like, he's reread it and read it and he has to go slow through it because it's dense, but like he's, he's really worked on it. And I'm like, well, if you, if you're having to work real hard on confessions, (laughs) like I'm not going to hand you anything much more complex than that. Right. Like, Confessions can be dense in places, but there's also places like, yes, I understand you stole a pear and you're sad about it. Right. Uh, Yeah. So punish me, God, punish me. (laughs) Right. Relax, Augustine. So anyway, and they were they were also trying to remember they had done a study on Bonhoeffer Mm -hmm. and he was trying to quote something from Bonhoeffer from discipleship. But he kept on saying Oppenheimer. And I'm like. The guy who made the atomic bomb, like why he did have some religious writings, but he really goes kind of a a different way with it. That's not particularly Christian in any way, shape or form. And then I'm like, they're describing it. They're like he was in a concentration camp. And I'm like, oh, 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 Dietrich, dear Dietrich. Um, and they and he had completely misunderstood Bonhoeffer's point on whatever it was. And then he was talking about how he was reading a Wesley biography and he completely misunderstood Wesley's point of view on things as well. Talked about how like Wesley rejected the church of England, which is the opposite of what Whoa, Wesley yeah, was trying to do. That's not true. <laughs> right. And, and so, so he thinks that he knows as much as I know. This is what I've really gotten from him is that he thinks that he's got all of the same knowledge as me, despite my degrees in this, you know, mm-hmm. he's read a couple Bible studies and they talked about Bonhoeffer one time and, and now he's set. And so he was talking about the sermon on Sunday and he's like, well, I disagree. And I'm like, that's fine. I mean, there's a lot of different ways of reading this. And people have read it a lot of different ways. But, you know, like, I I know my context. I'm preaching to my context. And I think that we need to talk about money because people in America always need to talk about money because we don't. And he was like, he, he went off on this tangent about Jesus and Peter on the beach. And like Jesus is asking Peter when, if he loves him. When Jesus picked up Peter and walked him, the footprints on the beach. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Like... On the beach. <laughs> I see posters for that all the time. It's a all great, it's a great, great moment in the gospel. It's the gospel right. of something or other. 
it's the next <laughs> chapter in John. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so it's the the Jesus, the Peter, do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep thing. Yes. Yes. And and his point was that as a preacher, I should be feeding my sheep. That's the, that's the exact thing he said. He says, as a preacher, you need to feed the sheep. And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. Preacher is only part of my job. It's important for some people, and I get that, that everything in the order of worship should be feeding you in some way, shape, or form. Like, I very intentionally choose my liturgy and choose my hymns so that they extend the sermon and help enrich the sermon in case the sermon isn't something that's feeding you. And this is why we have Sunday school, where you can go get your more academic bent on things if I don't do enough academic stuff in the sermon for you. And this is why we have the midweek worship service, where you can connect in a different spiritual way. Like, I am doing a whole lot of different things to feed you people. It's like, I'm not... It's not that I'm not doing that. So I was really upset about that accusation that I wasn't, yeah. that I wasn't feeding anything because I'm just not feeding him what he thinks he needs. I'm not feeding him spiritualized sermons that, that give him an opportunity to make his own sense out of the text and walk away not being challenged to live differently. I'm feeding them some vegetables when they've been getting, I don't know, like fudge brownie bars for years, mm-hmm. right? Those cosmic brownies. Yes, that's what I was yeah. thinking of with the little the little candies on top. That yeah. the reason, uh, listeners, the reason why that's what Joe was thinking about is that at Wesley there is a a cosmic brownie cross. Yeah, there is. In in the hallways, and I still don't fully understand why, and I never ask because I don't <laughs> care. But but every Wesley student now uh, can only picture uh, cosmic brownies. When Absolutely. we think about brownies, it's it's in our collective psyche at this point. Yeah, yeah. And so so now I have to decide whether I want to pivot a little bit more toward things that that feed people in that Jesus is my friend sense, or whether I want to stay with what I've been doing. Sure. And I think. Like, I think that I need to stay with, with what I'm doing, but also like, that's the seed of church conflict all the time mm-hmm. is what, what the music is and what the pastor's saying, you know, and, and the idea that somebody who thinks he knows better than me, how to run a church and how to care for a church is telling me that I am not doing my job well enough because I'm ignoring the spiritual health of my congregation. That, that really rankles me because I'm doing right. I honestly believe that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. All of my years of discipleship have formed me and all of my study has formed me to make me this force for change in this congregation, to make it more right. engaged with its community and to make it more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I'm not doing the wrong thing here. Sorry, you're not receiving it well, but I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Right. But you can't play that card too often. Otherwise, I, I agree. people get angry. Joe, I want to affirm you in what you in everything you just said. I think that one of the kind of odd things, another odd thing about our job is that we are one of those jobs that um, folks still kind of think – that there's no such thing as expert knowledge in this field. Right. And so when and, and I've discovered this as a guy too, like like this is this is sort of something that I think women and male pastors both experience in different ways. When I uh begin to gently insist that what I am saying is correct, you know, like like mm-hmm. about the Bible or about uh theological point or what have you there's a lot there's an an immediate pushback from a number of people you know how you you can't say that or or well that's i don't think that's correct and i'm like sure that's fine um like we're we're doing in bible study we we're doing romans Mm. uh, which is great and um you know romans one it has one of the handful of instances where the Bible might be discussing homosexuality. Right. It's got a good clobber passage. Got a good clobber passage. Uh, however, anybody who 
frankly, you don't even need to have taken a master's level course on Romans, which I have with Carla Works, <laughs> but to, to know this. But like anyone who tries to do that is clearly not reading well enough because the whole point of Paul invoking uh, what might be homosexuality, which is also debatable, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, but the whole point of Paul invoking that in chapter one is so that in chapter two, he can say, therefore, none of you can judge anyone. Right. Because uh, every single one of you is guilty and and of sin and lives in sin and in some form. And so uh, under no circumstances can we can we judge uh, anyone for any of that. Uh, like that's the whole point of that. The whole point of him invoking that is to is to say, so everybody shut up. You know, like, like, and, and have right. it not be a part of it. And so we're doing that in Bible study, and, and man, somebody did not like that. Hmm. Somebody did not like that. You're trying to diminish chapter one. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm suggesting the very correct thing, which is Paul uses chapter one exclusively to get to chapter two. Like, that's all. That's how arguments it, work, and Paul is always arguments. making an argument. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, and, and in that I was sort of gently and not so gently accused of liberal bias. You know, all that all that liberal schooling that I got right. when when really the meaning of the text is plain. And I'm like, you're right. The meaning of the text is plain. Paul is <laughs> <laughs> bringing this forward in order to say no one is allowed to judge. And right. so whenever people bring the. Romans one text forward to judge LGBTQ folks, they are simply doing the wrong thing. Like, well, we've we've according to the Bible, like according to the to the context with which that verse is pulled from. But the, my I tell that story to illustrate what you're saying, like, you know, that kind of odd pushback against folks like us is. Would would be really strange if we were accountants, right? You know what I mean. Or it would be really odd if we well doctors get that pushback too. But like yeah. we would be really uh, it would be really odd if we were carpenters. You know, people with with other forms of expertise. Like I couldn't imagine showing up to a carpenter uh, who has fixed something for me and saying, mm, "Not what I'd have done." <laughs> right, right. What are you talking about? And I, you know. I think in a way, the pushback that we get is baked into our Wesleyan theology because there's there's that emphasis on personal experience. Sure. And that that gets tricky because that and, and it's something that Wesley would have disagreed with. Right. Wesley would have been like, no, we're going to study our Bibles and we are going to look at tradition. And like we have the, the quadrilateral because that comes out of his thinking. Mm-hmm. So. It, it is always that your personal experience of God is it must be balanced against other sources of information, particularly scripture and scripture read in the light of, of tradition and and in light of reason and understanding the text complexly. But people think that their personal bias and their personal experience and their personal convictions are the determining factor for how anything is to be interpreted or read. And it doesn't matter what schooling you have because your schooling isn't more important than my convictions. Right. And that's right. tricky. I mean, it's there. It's a, it's a stream in our theology that you need to just got to deal with. I agree. I agree. So how was your week? Anything my, to highlight? Uh, just, I was able to be with folks in the hospital. I've been doing that a lot actually recently. A lot of funerals, a lot of hospital visits, um, over the last several weeks. Um, it's just, you know. What do you do to take care of yourself after a funeral and a hospital visit? Well, funerals are not that bad. Um, this is going to sound morbid, but I, I get a lot out of per- performing and conducting funerals. Mm. Because I just find it, it it's it's such a great opportunity to be with people. It's one of the few spaces, public and private spaces, that folks of all faiths and no faiths still find value in having a clergy person at. Mm. And so it's a really great space to just chat with people and be with people and 
preach the gospel to people in in, in a in a way that you know is helpful. I was uh, I've had experiences. I think weddings can be that way too in certain cases, but but I think funerals are are special in that way. And so I don't I don't do a lot of self care after funerals because I don't it doesn't uh, negatively affect me too much. Hospital visits are tough, uh, mostly because that's just I'm so introverted, and so the idea of visiting folks in the hospital is kind of hard for me. I hear you personally. Um, I was been to Pittsburgh at the Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh, and that's hard. Children's hospitals are, of course, you know, just very sad. And uh, but but I was doing that. I did that this week. Um, I got a library card at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary Library. That was awesome. Yeah, that's self-care. Well, that is self-care. You're totally right. Um, so I checked out some books, and I only have them for a month, so I've been reading all of them. I'm like, woo, we're doing it. We're on a roll. Uh, so I've been enjoying that. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I've, there hasn't been there hasn't been a whole I had a really you know I, there's another thing I had a really great conversation with the music director at, at the church today we have a weekly meeting where we chat about you know just ministry and about we try to also be really kind of human and and friendly and we we might chat about our days and weeks and maybe nerd stuff like theology stuff and he's a nice he's a good guy he's re, he's pretty new we just hired him last year and um it's been really good, and this was a good meeting. This was a very good meeting. We chatted about vision, music ministry vision at the church, and what would it take to get new and different people involved in worship and more participation across the board. He shared with me uh, and ended up ended up getting kind of emotional and vulnerable, sharing with me a story about finding Christ in vulnerable people and in the least of these. And I was like, man, that that's really important. I'm really glad you're sharing that. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a great conversation. That, that was a good highlight. That was a good highlight. Um, but yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm, uh, we're talking about church conflict and you, you've shared some of that as, you know, already in your, in your, in your reflection on the week. I, I've had uh, a long couple of weeks at the church involving conflict, but also just regular kind of paperwork, churchy stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm real tired. Like I'm, I'm really kind of, I'm not really burned out. I, I always uh, interpret being burned out as just having fantasies of running away. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that, that, and, and whenever I start to cross into that, I, I really try to care, take care of myself and do what I need to do to keep myself going in a, in a positive way, not just in a white knuckling way, but in a positive way. Um, and so I don't think I'm there. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty darn tired. I'm pretty darn tired of a lot of this. <laughs> Our yeah. job is strange, um, as the listeners of our podcast know by now, being a pastor is weird. And um, it, it, it's this kind of queer, strange thing we do where where we be with people at – we be with all kinds of people at their most vulnerable while they're yelling at us, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I say that I, I hold um, older ladies' hands while they tell me I'm doing it wrong. Right. Um, hmm. You know, and and uh, and I have to do it with a smile, you know, and I nod a lot and go, it's OK, Ethel. I don't have any Ethels at the church, so I'm not implicating anybody. But I'm like, it's all right, Ethel. We'll make it together, you know. <laughs> yeah. And. Um, yeah, Joe, that's kind of where I'm at right now. It's it's um, I think uh, I'll throw this out there. I think one of the reasons why church conflict, pastor church conflicts are so hard is be, particularly in the Methodist tradition that we're in, is because pastors have a lot of responsibility but very little authority mm. in a more congregational polity. So I uh, know what that means, listeners, is um, churches that hire their pastors to kind of be their leaders, 
So uh, Baptist churches, UCC churches, um, I think uh, Presbyterian churches are like this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in church setups like that, uh, I think the 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 uh, relationship is a little more like um, a congregation looking for a boss. It sounds kind of odd like that. Look, a group of people looking for somebody to lead them and 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 stuff like that. In the Methodist Church, it's it's just different. It's not really like that. But we still have a ton of responsibility. Like we still, you know, our our districts are still like. It's your responsibility to get this paperwork done. It's your responsibility to do X, Y, Z thing. But culturally, the church isn't really set up to like for people to like listen to us all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes conflict hard. There's not a whole lot of like decorum. Like there's not a whole lot of uh, taboo around arguing with the pastor. And so, in my experience, and, and this is exacerbated by being a, a young person. Mm-hmm. Where the words disrespectful are thrown around to describe me. Right. That I'm I'm disrespectful. Now, in my world, the things that come out of I'll, I don't care, the things that come out of President Donald Trump's mouth are disrespectful. Right. And I'm not saying that. <laughs> you know, uh all I'm doing is being myself. Mm-hmm. But but it's interpreted as sort of disrespect and by some folks, not everybody. And there's really not a whole lot I or any of us can do about that. We instead just kind of have to, you know, sort of take it and um, try to be our own mediators, Mm. which I just don't uh, think is helpful. I just don't think it's helpful. I'm sorry I'm ranting a little bit. I feel like I'm rambling a little. Oh, no, I think I think you're on point. I think you've identified something that I was going to bring up is that. A lot of the time, young pastors are sent to these smaller churches that, like in my case, the since the previous pastor was retired, the previous pastor didn't do a ton of stuff because he was there part time. And so the church leadership had to take on a lot more leadership and get a lot more things done. And so the the power of the pastor, the authority of the pastor was really limited in that way mm-hmm. and then and then you get a young pastor who hasn't had a church before and gets set into this situation where people already feel like they know what's best and already feel like they know what they need and have already assessed their situation and they know what they want to have and what they want to get done and they're not going to listen to this young person with these new ideas who's just so green that they have no idea what could be helpful in this situation regardless of whatever quote unquote learning they have right so i think that that in some ways the united methodist system as it functions right now sets us up for failure a whole lot because we get put into churches that have cultures already established where they're not really going to care to listen to us. They're not really going to care to work with us. And that that really hinders our ability to effectively lead the congregation anywhere new. If you just want us to be caretakers, we can be caretakers. Like we can come in and just do worship and just kind of keep things the way they are. But you train us in our seminaries to be disruptors and you train us in our seminaries to kind of pull people to a better place and to get people to grow. But that's so hard to do in the situations that we're in. And that tension between our desire to make disciples who are more like Jesus and the church's desire to stay exactly the way it is, is always going to be a source of conflict. And then you add into it long-term staff members who know the way the church is run and feel like they are the lifeblood of the church. And if they don't like the direction you're going in, they're just going to undercut you. Like, that's just what happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're right. And, You're and right. I'm lucky that, like, my music director and I work really well together. And she wants to support me, and she's happy to give me context about how things have been done. But she also supports me in how things go forward. Like... They don't have a Christmas Eve service at this church. They what? don't do anything for Christmas at this church. And Why? 
I don't know. I think it's because the previous pastor was retired and would have family come into town. And it just slowly morphed to they would do a lessons and carol service on the Sunday before Christmas. And that was all they did. And I'm like, this is our night. Like, Easter should really be our day. Like, but nobody does that, right? Everybody does Christmas. Why do we mm-hmm. not do a Christmas thing? We're the North Pole when, like, the train comes up for the tourists. Like, how do we not do a Christmas thing? So, like, my my music director is really happy to, like, point these things out and be like, here's an opportunity for you. Or this thing is kind of a sacred cow. Don't touch it unless until you're ready to. Um, but it's really supported of, supportive of me. But if it were, if I were to be conflicting with her over things and if she thought she knew best how things were and if it hadn't been so easy to change worship, like, I'd be miserable here and I would ask to move or quit. I'm like... Anybody who's listened to the podcast knows that I've been on the verge of quitting since I started. (laughs) Um, Like, things feel better now. And that's probably the antidepressants doing their work. But also, like, things are kind of starting and going. And I feel like I've got, I feel like the ball is rolling a little bit more, which is nice. I think as young pastors putting these congregations, we're always going to run into conflict of some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Because that's just how the system is kind of set up. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, uh, you know, I don't really know how to navigate that. I, uh, well, I mean, I do. I do know how to navigate it. I, but I don't know how to navigate it in a way that, that I don't, damage isn't dealt to me. Yeah. You I know. A, go ahead. No, no, I'm just kind of saying, you know, as a filler, go for it. Um, I took a cur- uh, course on conflict management at Wesley. Mm-hmm which was a great class. Um, It was a J-term class, so it was a lot, but it was good. And one of the, one of my takeaways from it is that in most cases of conflict, people really just want to be heard and want to be acknowledged and want to know that they matter. And like, that's, that's kind of a primary insecurity that's behind a lot of conflict. And so even just being able to honor people's voices is a really easy way to to not do any damage to yourself, but to get to get things out there and then to lay out a really clear process of how we're going to move through whatever the conflict is. Then people feel like they have buy in. Then people feel like whatever change is happening is is and ends up being supportive and people just have to to try it, you know. And that right. tends to be an easy way of dealing with, like, structural changes that might be conflicting. Like, if you if you happen to need to buy new doors for your church, right. that's a good way of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or if you want to change up, like, the worship services or something like that. Like, that's the way you do that. But that interpersonal conflict where one church member just has it out for you or somebody else on staff just has it out for you and you know that it's happening and they know that it's happening and there's you can go through the SPRC and you can kind of navigate it but it always always ends up with you having to confront whatever the underlying conflict is and sometimes it's not resolvable and then Mm -hmm. you're just stuck with with having to continue to work with somebody who doesn't like you and doesn't appreciate you and is going to continue to undercut you. Or then you have to like find somebody new and go through that whole hiring process. And, and I think a lot of pastors are conflict averse people. Like I think uh, the job of pastor, a lot of people who are attracted to that are kind of people pleasers. And that's something that we like to do. And so that makes conflict really difficult for us because we want to make everybody happy and it's impossible in a lot of these conflict situations. Yeah. Which is when like outside mediators are really important, right? Like get the district superintendent involved, like get your SPRC, your staff parish relations committee, get all of them involved and like work through it. But you have to get people to want to come to that working through it. And I think a lot of people are happier to stay in a negative situation that is at least stable than to up upend the situation, make it unstable so that it can be better. Right, right. I agree. Uh, and, and I don't know, That's that is really what gets me about 
the parishioner who doesn't think that I preach sermons that feed the sheep, uh, is it, it took him a long time to get to that. Like there is, he did a lot of talking around what he thinks the problem is and he never really hit it on the head, right? Like he just suggested a lot of things. And so I had to like point blank ask him, do you think, do you think that I'm not feeding people? Or he also talked about how people in this area like things that are more traditional. And I was like, well, do you think that I'm not being traditional enough? Because I only use the hymnals that we have. And I have a more traditional order of service than what you had before. So I need you to tell me exactly what you mean. And I think it's, I, I have found, this might be a Southern thing, but I have found that church people really like to talk around what they think the problem is. And I really just want you to identify it for me so we can deal with it the way we need to deal with it. Right, right. And by the way, like one of the things that I've discovered at intern, when I was an intern and over the last, you know, two and a half years is that traditional is uh is one of those words that means very different things like yeah like for me when i hear somebody you know of my grandmother's generation saying we really like traditional hymns i now know what that means is we really like 1930s camp tunes yes like we that's what we like uh but in my world traditional hymns are um you know, come thou fount of every blessing or, or, oh, you really like, um, you know, uh, uh, come thou traveler unknown or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or the good Charles Wesley stuff. Yeah. And the answer is no, we don't, we don't like any of that. Um, we just like stuff that reminds us of when we were young. I'm like, oh, oh okay, sure. Yeah. We, uh, and we can do that occasionally. Oh, sure. You can't if we can, if we be... can find a camp tune that's any good. <laughs> then sure, you know, uh, that's my challenge. I'm like, well, let's try to find one that's good. Oh, you can't because they're bad. They're all bad. Yes. None of them are good. What about In the Garden? That's a bad song. Yeah. <laughs> it's all terrible. Yeah. Th- those are things that if there is a decent choral arrangement that the choir wants to do, I'll be like, okay, that hits the nostalgia button and I can deal with the bad theology later. But... And and that's another piece of it is that there's a lot of fire and brimstone, you're all going to hell, manipulative, fear-based theology out there that these people have imbibed over the course of their life. And they want to hear a little bit of that, too. Like, it's either a lot of people, a lot of older generations are caught in that it, it's it's like it's like being nostalgic for an abusive relationship right like it's there there is a there is a mental thing happening there where they really want to to have something familiar because the new stuff is unfamiliar right like that's where the liberal bias kind of comes out is mm-hmm. the people who think that you have a liberal bias and so you're not speaking the truth is they're nervous about what it means to to talk about all of this new stuff like if we welcome people what does like they're going to change things and i don't want things to change because that's new and that's scary and now i don't know what's true anymore right there's mm. There's a real fear behind a lot of that resistance. And I think you have to honor that fear. But I also think you can't point it out to them directly because they don't hear it when you say that. I agree. So I actually um, have found that what I uh, it's has been more effective to kind of turn some of that stuff that they're used to on its head a little bit. And so when I preached on the La- the rich man and Lazarus passage, I uh, talked about – I kind of focused on the gate. Like I didn't do a lot of the exegetical work with them. I, I try to save that for Bible studies or Sunday school, and I, I try to preach, uh, I'm going to say, figuratively um, mm. from the text and just kind of – yeah, it's just my style. But I focused a lot on – Lazarus, the text tells us that Lazarus uh, lays at the rich man's gate and is right there and is at the gate. And so I preach on that and I and I tell them I, at one point in the sermon that there is hellfire in store 
for those who are who fail to open wide their gates. Hmm. And that made them all very uncomfortable uh, because like I I use that language like I'm like, OK, let's talk about hell. Uh, if this text is talking about hell, which of course it's not, but let's let's make, play make believe for a second. What does this? What does the scripture tell us in this text? Uh, is the criteria for the rich man entering into hell? <laughs> right. Well, well, it has something to do not with, um, you know, some of the stuff we traditionally understand it, but it really has something to do with his failure to bring in the poor, decrepit sick Lazarus right um, which means that and so I said I was like yeah there's hellfire in store for those of us who fail to open up their gates and uh, and it's interesting because I still get it I don't have a ton of evangelicals at the church most of them have left but uh, I if if any of them were there they would have told me I preached on hell incorrectly uh, <laughs> <laughs> cool. And I'd be like, whatever. But that's what I do. I think it's helpful to to kind of use the language of of the context to try to uh, get across stuff that I think is a little better, hmm. you know. But I don't know. There's there's of course limitations to that. But that that's one of my favorite tactics. Um, that and I every time I talk about Jesus, I always I always put signifiers after him. And so it's a stylistic thing I do to make folks in my context a little annoyed with me in a good way. Mm-hmm. And so whenever Jesus is talking in, in the in the text, I'm always like, remember, this comes out of the mouth of Jesus, the Savior, the Lord, the Master. <laughs> what does the Master say? <laughs> what you know? Well, if this is what the Master says. Well, why aren't we following it? You know what I mean? Uh, and and I I keep throwing that out there, and it, it annoys them. I'm trying to get them to run me out is really is really the thing. Then I can just go away, become a librarian like I want. Right. And that's I'm not actually. I I know. I know, but like the impulse is also still there. Like I I don't know. On days when I'm when I am not as as functional as I want to be because of my mental health, I'm like, maybe I just make every day like this day, right? Like, maybe I just don't do it, and they'll fire me, and I can go take a, like, a a job at the paper mill down the road until my lease is out, and then I can just leave. Right. (laughs) Then I don't have to do this paperwork, and then I don't have to deal with these people. Like, I fantasize about no longer being a Christian all the time. I'm like, what would it be like if I just left all the church to its own devices and I never had to be upset or concerned with the perversions of the words of Christ that I see put out into the world all of the time? Like, what would it be like to just not care about all of this? And honestly, seems like a better world. <laughs> So yes, I uh, I feel that a lot. I think about that a lot. Sometimes I I have this master plan of having every pastor in the Methodist Church that's like within like the 32 and under range to just like leave. Yeah. Like just like quit, just quit tomorrow. Uh, and uh, and and they're and everybody's like, why? Everybody like the two people I've told this. They're like, why? And I'm like, well. Because uh, a 32-year-old and under layperson has about, oh, I don't know, a million times more power than a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. Everybody wants them to be there. Yeah, uh, until they start talking. But but then what are they going to do? Right. Like just show up be like, hey, I volunteer to be on missions committee. Great. Okay, here's what we're going to do. No, we don't want to do that. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to organize it anyway, and we're going to do it anyway. So bye, <laughs> you know. Or, hey, I volunteer to teach Sunday school. Well, we don't like your liberal bias. Oh, I, that's fine. I don't care. I'm still going to advertise it, and I'm still going to teach a Sunday school class, and everybody's going to come to mind. So, sorry. You know? <laughs> like, like, but that's the thing. Like, like what, what? you know. You, you're pastor. You're, oh, we're both yeah. pastors. We can't do anything to stop lay people from doing anything. Absolutely. So, and so that's how you fix it right now. And that's not going to work, though, because – yeah. Then we're poor. Then we don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Then we're just back to being poor millennials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I had a meeting uh, with um, other young clergy in the district, in the in the area, actually. It was these two mountain districts that were in um, on Thursday before I left for the conference. And I, I had walked into that meeting a lot more um, chipper than, than I had been in the past because, like, things feel like they're going better, blah, 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 blah. Like, I was just in a much better mental headspace than I had been. And then we, one of the first questions was, uh, how are you, how, how, what's the fallout from general conference like for you? And, and what are you doing in light of annual conference where general conference, we decided to be homophobic and annual conference, we put in a lot of affirming and, and at the very least moderate delegates to the next general conference. Um, and what we found was that every single one of us was so discouraged about the future of the church and so uncertain about the future of the church and every single one of us was facing conflict in our churches and being undermined by people and having to deal with things that were not the mission of christ and all sorts of stuff <laughs> where like we're in this meeting and we're all just like why are we doing this like we every single one of us has the education to go do something else why are we still with this dying organization and there's not much room for change and there's not much hope for change. And and so we went to lunch afterwards and I got a beer because we went to a brewery like somebody else got a beer, too. And I'm glad because I didn't want to drink alone. But <laughs> it's not so bad. <laughs> uh, but like that's that's the state of our young clergy is we really have to fight to be hopeful because we're put in these situations where like. Our deepest convictions are constantly challenged by the people that we're supposed to be working for and caring for and feeding. You know, it's it's a real it's a real challenge. Mm -hmm. And like you could put me in the most liberal congregation and I'll find something to co complain about there, too. You know, but, oh, sure. Same here. But what we really need are for seasons, seasoned pastors to be in these rural communities. And it's really like it's money again, right? It is the, the pay structure of pastors in the United Methodist Church and that small churches can't afford a seasoned pastor who could really turn something around here and put the energy they need to in it with all their experience. And so instead, they get us with a lot of knowledge and a lot of ideas and a lot of ways of knowing how to do things, but also having to really struggle to gain the respect of our congregation. No matter how much they say they love us, Right. It's gaining mm -hmm. their respect. That's the problem. Right. Right. Trust. And you're exactly right. I uh, follow a, I'm on like a Facebook group for a, like theology. It's a David Bentley Hart fan page, to be completely honest with you. But <laughs> but it's it's uh, overrun by once David Bentley Hart came out as a socialist, it became overrun by right wing trolls. And so not overrun, but there's a number of them. And so now the conversation is occasionally great, but a lot of times it's all very odd. And somebody who clearly has not read Hart um, asks the question today. Uh, um, uh, I understand how how Hart may have come to conclusion that there is a God through logic and reason, but how did he come to the conclusion that Christianity is right through logic and reason? And and some people people like me are like he didn't he he came to to a faith in Christ from other things as well like there's a ton of stuff and uh, and somebody quotes puts this passage from Hart on there where he talks about um, how how gorgeous the incarnation is mm. just like how how uh, undescribably beautiful. God um, it empties himself into the form of a, of a slave, you know, and all of that. And this guy who posted the question was like, well, this is silly. Are you saying that that heart only comes to believe in Christ because it's beautiful? And And I'm like, yeah, brother, you got it. <laughs> like, like that's actually the only reason any of us come to believe in Christ at this point in, in right. our life. Like, and I and I realized that that was true about me. And so, like, this connects to your comment about 
sometimes you fantasize about not being a Christian. Right. Like like it, it caused me to think, well, why am I still doing this? Like what what's convinced me to to do this? And it really just comes down to the beauty of Jesus. Jesus is the beautiful one. And and uh, the beauty of, of a God of infinite love who uh, um, came on the, the earth as a, as a slave uh, and tries to tries and hopefully succeeds and, and gathering all of us up into <laughs> into uh, his justice and peace and love and mercy and all that stuff. And it's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, uh, otherwise, otherwise, you know, of course I wouldn't be doing this, you know, right. I'd be I'd be looking for something more beautiful. Right. And and yes, beauty is very subjective in a sense, in a sense, a uh, heart heart would say that that is true. But that the beautiful that that we search for the beautiful is not a purely subjective thing. But that the quest for the beautiful is is a sign of beauty's transcendence and and stuff like that, which I I find compelling in different ways. But like and so, yes, I know beauty is what we find beautiful is subjective and based on a ton of cultural things and, and all that's fine. I don't care about it. that's true and I care about it, but it it doesn't really impact how this is true of me, you know, Yeah. that I, I find Jesus uh to be the beautiful one. So I, I, I do it. I go with it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like using that, that category as well. I mean, my, my science and religion dissertation was on awe and wonder and how that language gets used in both science and religion. And beauty is a big part of an, an awe filled experience or a wonder filled experience is that, I mean, that's, that's a descriptor word that you find people using all the time. And so it, mm. it taps into something that's really fundamental in us that we do seek for you, like you may as well call it beauty. Like you can, you can call it goodness, I guess, but I think that our culture has already kind of made the connection between beauty and goodness, right. which is completely outside of physical attractiveness. Like that's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I do. I mean, I find the incarnation to be really beautiful. I mean, the incarnation is why I stay, right? Like, that is just, it's so profound to me that instead of God being like Zeus coming down to earth to seduce women and be a dick in general, right? And a swan. He's a swan at one point. He's a swan, right? And swans are mean. Anyway. They're mean. They're like, they're like geese. Yeah, they'll just go after you. So instead of that, right, we get Jesus, who is this person who is deeply concerned with the poor, has a preferential option for the poor, is formed in this this value system that is based on love of God and love of neighbor and love of self, right? Like it's not it's not something that's intended to tear anything down or to assert dominance over anybody else. It's intended to free you from that system of dominance and that system of having to be obedient to earthly powers, right? Like for mm-hmm. freedom Christ has set us free and Christ does that through the incarnation and the resurrection. And that's powerful, right? You don't have to be racist anymore. Like, you'll spend your life undoing the racism that is is incumbent, but you're free from it, right? You don't have to be sexist. You're free from it. You don't have to panic about money and how you're going to be provided for. You're free from that, that scramble for wealth and that need to keep things for yourself. You don't have to fight with other people about what songs you sing in worship because you are freed from that need to have that met. Right. You know that you can go get that need met another time in another way because, you know, that God is a God who provides and is a God of abundance. Right. Like you are free to live a full life and to bring others into that full life. And I'm here for that. Right. Like that that appeals to me. What I'm not here for are all of these squabbles about who's in and who's out and and like all of the millions of different ideas of ways to get children into the church instead of meeting children where they are and seeing how we can care for them as they are. Right. 
And but it's so hard to get people who are panicked about the survival of their church to see that we are free from the structure of the church too. You know, there will there will be a way for Christians to gather all the way until Jesus comes back. And if it doesn't happen in this building, the reign of God will still arrive. And mm. and people don't understand that that freedom is there for them. Right. Right. And I don't either. I mean, I live life like that all the time, right? Right. Absolutely. It, it, yeah. Isn't isn't this really what Wesley means when he says practical atheism? You know, that all of us are really practical atheists that that our day to day lives simply do not reflect, you know, that our faith in God. They just don't. And and so there and that's in some ways the trick. Actually, in every way, that's the trick, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the trick is to fix that. Um, no, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I mean, that is a way of managing conflict is getting people to recenter themselves around the common goal and that right. that can often diffuse a lot of conflict and but then that often means that if somebody doesn't want to get on board with the common goal then they'll just go sit in the garden and eat worms because nobody loves them mm -hmm. that's it is that a saying that other people have that was a saying in my family a lot when i was that kid. that uh strikes me as a deeply southern saying <laughs> <laughs> okay Cool. When I heard that, I envisioned a Southern person saying it, <laughs> not in any classist or racist way, just a that sounds like a salt of the earth kind of a thing. Yeah. Where I, where I come from, we didn't have a garden, nor did we eat worms. Not that the South <laughs> people in the South did that, but like, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it, I got said to me a lot. I must have been a pouty kid. But it, yeah, it's like you're nobody is paying attention to you, so you're just gonna go pout. I'm gonna go in the garden and eat worms. Maybe it's right. a. I feel like I have a cross stitch of it somewhere. It must be a southern thing. <laughs> why do I think? Why am I saying this? <laughs> that happens to me a lot. Like Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Like I don't. That's also a southern thing. I don't. Oh, I don't know well, anything about it. Creeks rise, my friend. And you have to. You have to trust in the Lord that you're gonna show up the next day. Anyway. No, that's that's silly. <laughs> there is no God. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Lord. Yeah. Well, I really appreciated being able to talk with you today, Joe. I, I always do. So thanks. Everybody, this has been What the Hell is a Pastor. I am Ethan, and this is Joe, and we will see you next time. Those <laughs> dicks. <laughs> oh, man. Did I say dick in the podcast? I think you I did. did not. No, you didn't. You're, you're good. Are we sure? Ah, oh, who knows? <laughs> I'll look back and see. <laughs> I can't remember. I'm the one who edits them, so I, I, I get to decide what I want to do.